Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 hiding out on a roof here in 2022. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Phyllis Cove. And with us today, we're very excited to have Kyle Buchanan, the pop culture writer at New York Times. He's a column called The Projectionist. He also wrote a hot ass fucking book. Blood, sweat, and chrome. Um, I don't remember what the uh, the colon is, but it's about the, the making of wild Mad Max. and true story of Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> making of Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, so I haven't read it, but I have read the excerpt. That was uh, <laughs> <laughs> the excerpt was great. The, the, it's, that it's a great book. It's horrible. like a legit great book. Yes, I I, I would also just say I love Hollywood it, books and I love Australia. That's my new. My new thing is Australia fucking rocks, and I can't wait to read this. And listen, it's- interviewing Australian crew members is as uh, <laughs> as juicy, as unfiltered, and yeah. as delightful as you would expect. How much time did you spend in Australia uh, researching this book? I mean, hardly any, because I started writing it in the you know lockdown part of the pandemic. Oh, wow. So. I wish I could have just gone there and rifled through everybody's shoeboxes of old stuff, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and taken people out to bars and whatnot. But uh, it had to be done mostly on Zoom. Can I, I get, want to ask yeah, a little more to... about the book. If yeah, you go ahead. I, I never do this, but, you know, this book actually sounds interesting. Um, <laughs> so 
you went to lockdown like the rest of us and mm-hmm. being a writer, uh, did you think about a bunch of different projects you can come up with? Or is this something that had been percolating for a while? Or Honestly, it's kind of both in that, like, you know, in spring 2020, my day job uh, for the Times is covering movies and they weren't coming out anymore. So I'm like, OK, well, what can I possibly write about since the release calendar has basically fallen apart? Drunk. Yeah. Um, and I knew it was about to be the fifth anniversary of Fury Road. Uh, I had heard a lot of these stories uh, sort of, you know, through the rumor mill over the years. Maybe things that were alluded to uh, by the stars when they first did press, but not really (laughs) talked about. Um, And then just also, it's a fantastic movie and there's so much to dig into. So I thought I would do a fifth anniversary piece for the Times. And out of that, you know, there were so many incredible stories uh, that I was able to spin a whole book from it. That's awesome. It's it's also just I mean, for our listeners, anyone who's just a fan of filmmaking and just the 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 undertaking of a film, it's a testament to that. It's also a testament to just I mean, this movie just shouldn't exist. It, it, you know what I mean? When you think about, I mean, I think the Soderbergh quote of I, I don't I don't understand how they're not still making this movie and why people haven't died yeah. is is just it, it really is just a towering achievement in so many ways. And then on top of it, that's like fucking crazy fun stories of just like, you know, the shit that went down. I appreciate you putting it that way because, you know, we're us and and your listeners are them, uh, which is to say that we're all people who are interested in like how things get made. Almost certainly, right? Like I've always been transfixed by that. I love reading Wikipedia articles and uh, books. You know, uh, there's a lot of really classic books about how difficult it is to make a movie. Um, Mm -hmm. But the thing is that a lot of those books, like, you know, John Gregory's Dunn's Monster uh, or The Devil's Candy about the making of Bonfire of the Vanities by Mm -hmm. Julie Solomon, so good, so juicy, so so well-written. It's just that the movies didn't turn out great. And I kind (laughs) of wanted to write a book about how hard it is to make a movie because this is one of the Mm -hmm. probably top 10 hardest movies to ever have gotten made. Uh, Somehow, despite it all, or maybe even because of it, the end result is a masterpiece, which is even more rare. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very true that, like, generally speaking, and I don't know if you've heard this, Kenny, in, in writers' rooms that you've been in, but they say, you know, you learn the most from um, from the movies that don't work or from the shows that don't work. Um, and, and I think there's something to that. And there's lots of great stories that come out of it. Uh, and yet at the same time, it'd be great if the good stories went with the things that actually turn out to be good movies, which is such a rarity, unfortunately. And, and this book is a testament to that. It's, it's pretty, I mean, Listen, it's one of those films that I remember I went to see an early screening of it with a friend and it just knocks you on your ass from like the literally from the jump. Um, It's such a, you know, Kenny and I did an episode last night for a different podcast on Moulin Rouge, um, which is similarly a film that's just like the vision of this thing. It's like get on the ride or don't bother being here. Yeah. Um, And this movie, Mad Max, is just one. It's such an aggressively, artistically unlike anything. Um, and I also think that, you know, at part of, I, I imagine part of the reason that you wrote the book too, is it's only grown in esteem since its release. I mean, the love for it is only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger as it continues. It's, it's unbelievable. Australians just do it different. I mean, uh, <laughs> just do it better. The, the, <laughs> the can lineup might be official and released by the time this episode mm-hmm. comes out, but mm-hmm. the rumors have it that we are going to get, well, one is confirmed, Elvis, the new Mm -hmm. Baz Luhrmann movie, but then also (laughs) 
George Miller's 3,000 Years of Longing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, can I possibly take the new <laughs> Miller and the new Berman in the same week? Like, <laughs> yeah. Plus, the Miller one sounds... In, like People you, still don't really can. know what that one's about. It's crazy. It's crazy. You can. Like, it, we, we stumbled upon this Australian pocket in, what we, in, in our podcasting lives, kind of. Mm-hmm. And it's been wonderful. Like, it's just been wonderful because, I don't know, I, I mean... All these years, we're in the middle of 99, obviously, our our Mm -hmm. podcast. And and 99 is a very ponderous time, Mm -hmm. right? So many of these films, including the one we're about to talk about, are, you know, very, you know, uh, like introspective Mm -hmm. and, you know, minimalist, but, you know, kind of uh, hinting at larger themes or talking about existential shit. And uh, the Australian films that we've covered, Big Little or In the Middle, do that, but you know, aren't so fucking precious about it, mm-hmm. and also like to have fun and play really loud music. So I really love that about. It. I, I I love the maximalism of some of this stuff, and uh, the maximalism of emotions, maximalism maximalism of visuals and and you know sound and all of you know scope and and it's really really wonderful. So I'm thrilled that there's a new. George Miller, that sounds like uh, one of the big Millers, you know? I, he, does sounds some, interesting. he does some smaller movies that it just feels like, why are you wasting your time? Like a Lorenzo's uh, yeah. Oil. Oh, but, I love uh, Lorenzo's Oil. I mean, I, it's, it's one bad, of the most eclectic yeah. resumes there is. It is, um, yeah. But, you know, it's also fascinating vis-a-vis the movie we're about to talk about, say, uh, yeah. following, because George Miller and Chris Nolan basically both started... Uh, with their very first movies, mm-hmm. you know, shooting them essentially guerrilla style for mm-hmm. incredibly little. And the return on investment, I mean, literally in the case yeah. of the first Mad Max, it was a financial return that was Insane. in the Guinness Book yeah. of Records. But yeah. obviously with Chris Nolan, the following was not a huge uh, blockbuster yeah. by any means. It obviously set him up to make them, you know, and it's fascinating yeah. to see the ways that they have taken that guerrilla beginning and blaze their own path through Hollywood tentpole filmmaking. Absolutely. It is funny that, you know, they do have similarities. They don't have similarities necessarily um, stylistically, um, but they do have similarities in terms of scope, in terms of just the, the, the enormous undertaking that they, that they sort of, uh, the filmmaking undertaking of what they do. There really is no one doing what Chris Nolan's doing. Both these guys invent new techniques with every film they make. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they, they, so many big budget studio filmmakers just take the money and do the best they can with what they have. But these guys are always pushing the medium, which is why I love them so much. I really do love Christopher Nolan. I really think he's an, an, an incredible filmmaker, even if everything he's done doesn't quite work. And they both love practical stunts and effects for the most part. They also both love Batman. I mean, George Miller came (laughs) very close to making Justice League. He did. did. With Army Hammer as Batman. Yes. I will say, though, it's it's clear that um, that George Miller likes Warner Brothers more than uh, Chris Nolan at the moment. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, well, <laughs> that, that, that changes depending on what year you're asking. Uh, yeah, Chris I was Nolan, just going to say. Chris Nolan has never sued Warner Brothers. <laughs> That's true. George Miller has twice, so. <laughs> That's actually so Actually, true. I think they'd have a lot they to both, talk about. Yeah, they have a fraught relationship with Warner Brothers. Both of them do, for sure. I, I, I You know, it's interesting. I think that, like, I, I would never have 
thought to compare them, but this, you know, just the confluence of, of your book and everything does feel very, they do have a lot of similarities. Um, this movie that we're about to talk about following um, was Chris Nolan's first theatrical release, although it's barely theatrical length. I think it just ekes over. Uh, and I don't know that it ever had a full-on theatrical release. I mean, did it? Because I, I know it, it made like $50,000. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's, an, it's one of those things that's interesting and why I love that it's on this podcast is because when you Google it, it says 1998. It does. It, yeah. It's astounding to me that Google has such accurate information for everything except movie release dates. Yeah, it's bizarre. You wouldn't think it would be yeah. so hard, but they're yeah. like, oh, in 1998, it was at the San Francisco Film Festival. Right. So that's when it came out. No, it came out in 1999, yeah. but you know, minimally so. I didn't yeah. see this movie until after Memento. Mm-hmm. Correct. Same with me. I saw I, this is one of those. So just to, for context for our listeners, um, it came out April 2nd, 99, I believe in like two or three theaters. Um, so to, to say that it had sort of, it did have a theatrical release in 99, but again, as I said, it made about $48,000 on a $6,000 budget. This movie looks unbelievable for $6,000. I mean, it's truly, it's, it's unreal. There's no way it only cost $6,000, but okay, sure. <laughs> I mean, even if it costs $10,000, yeah, even, no, even, even, even if it costs 12, yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's, like, it's, 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 a, it's an unbelievable looking film. Um, the, it revolves around a young writer living in London. He follows people in the hope of using their lives in his novels, but the hobby becomes an obsession and he soon finds himself going further than he intended. It's got 81% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 85 from audiences. Um, I do think that this movie, watching it again, I had not seen this film probably since 2000 is my guess. I mean, it's been, it's been probably over 20 years since I watched it. Um, it is so baby Nolan in so many ways. It's crazy. Like in terms of the, the tricks and the things that he does, it's just like, it's all there. Like the template's all there. It's all there. It is a skeleton key to everything about yeah. him. Yeah. All of his motifs, all of his obsessions. It yeah. is actually really wild to go back. And especially because you know, it's a nonlinear movie and he loves to play with loves time. <laughs> yes. You can't help but while watching it, make these associations in a very nonlinear way yourself mm-hmm. with all these other things that he's done over the course of his career. It's yeah. truly wild now yeah. it, to it really go is. back and watch it knowing what he's going to go on and do. There's also something, you know, um, I'm, I'm watching the Sam Raimi films along with the Blank Check miniseries that's happening um, and as we speak. And it's so rare that you see a filmmaker fully formed from their first film, right? Like Mad Max is a perfect example of that. Evil Dead is a perfect example of that, of just like filmmakers. And this is too. And it's like the greats are the people where you can see that from the ground, like right out of the gate, these guys know exactly what they want to say. They know how they want to say it. And they sharpen that tool as they continue to sort of go down this road. It's pretty amazing. Also, I mean, another way to look at it is some directors tell the same story over and over, yes. just <laughs> with different mo- different ideas, different settings, but kind of the same interests and obsessions. Uh, and Nolan yes. absolutely oh, yeah. <laughs> is one of those people. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I, I would actually argue that Nolan, all of his strengths and all of his weaknesses are on full display in this film. I'm curious to hear. <laughs> I, I think that, I mean, because I do think that he's, I mean, he's not good at writing female characters. We all, I mean, we all know that, that it's not one of his strengths. Um, they tend to be, you know, manipulative and lacking in depth and sort of foils to the, to the male characters to some degree or another. Um, 
And I also have to be honest where I don't think that I'm as that I have as much of an affinity for Nolan when he's in crime mode as he is when he's not in crime mode. And he's almost and, never not in crime yeah, mode what, in some way. <laughs> I, I guess what I mean is this movie and Memento and Tenant mm-hmm. feel very much sort of, first of all, I, I, you know, I, as much as I love a fractured narrative, sometimes I find it a little bit just distracting and ultimately taking away sure. from what he's doing. And I think that this movie and Memento in particular feel kind of um, a little bit more grimy and a little bit more sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I, I think that when I speak of his not crime movies, I'm speaking of The Prestige. I'm speaking of Interstellar. Um, I, I those think are the that- ones you love. Those are the ones you prefer. I, I do love those films and they will be, we'll talk about our top fives at the end of this episode, but I do tend to think that when, and I do think Inception is a masterpiece and is sort of a crime movie, but not 100% really. A crime I think movie. the prestige is almost a crime movie in okay. that it involves elements of detective work and heisting, you know, he loves a I guess heist. That's, I guess that's He loves true. getting away with something. Yeah. He loves I guess I'm just... He does love I mean, I'm pushing. Criminals. I'm pushing the I know you are. I know. Well, I know, but, for sure. But I also think crime is... Memento's not really a crime movie, but it's an underworld movie, which is like... or you know, yeah. and I think that's kind of where the prestige right. is as well. You know, there's two, two guys yeah. who are basically plumbing, plumbing the depths of the earth for a better trick. Which I, I guess I'm just... Yeah, I I don't know what it is about this film and Memento in particular and Tenant, which I really don't like Tenant, just spoiler. Um, I, I I found Tenant to be infuriatingly up its own ass. Like the most like Nolan just But I think it's no literally filters. I think it's literally up its own ass. I think I think, I think the, the film is, is shot about. upside yes. uh, yeah, inside his ass. Yeah. Phil, would you mind just yeah. very briefly giving out your email address and phone <laughs> number for the Nolan fanboys? <laughs> for the Nolan fanboys? Bring it. I mean listen, I love Nolan and and I, I will I will speak at depth about the things that I love about him. But I do think that as I do think that he does have some some flaws. I don't think that he's a perfect filmmaker. I do find myself sometimes wishing that I've really come around an inception on uh, Interstellar, which was a film that when I saw it in the theater, I didn't love. And subsequently, I've really come to love it. And I think it's his most open hearted movie. I think it's his most familial movie. I think it's a very sort of it's not a surprise that Spielberg almost made that film. Like, I think there's a lot of heart in that film, which is something that I don't think he tends to have in his movies. They tend to have this coldness and they keep you at arm's length. Um, And that's I just one of those things that I find a little bit tough to kind of break through sometimes. Well, that's interesting. And I think that's why I actually do like following a lot and appreciated it more is because I, and I know there are people who cry their eyes out and interstellar and find that to be their favorite Nolan, but particularly because of what you're describing, I don't necessarily buy that warmth and that emotion from him. I don't think that he instinctively goes there himself. It just, it just doesn't connect with me. And I actually think that uh, the very sort of spare mean uh, feeling of following is the more provocative path that he could have like taken, and I, mm-hmm. you know there is there is I like agree with a, that. a cleanliness to his movies, even if the structure seems seems very uh, convoluted. Like mm-hmm. it's very strict and specific the way he engineers mm-hmm. absolutely everything about it. 
But there is just like a sort of scummy uh, malevolence to following that I and Memento. I think they both are. Oh yeah, for sure. By the way, and Prestige. Like let's just like like I I think you because when you're talking about the other path that he could take, Kyle, I think that was really interesting. I always think of Nolan's career. I think Nolan's career is a very interesting one, in that I think he made what he made four films before. Batman Begins, right? He made this, yes. he made Memento, he made Insomnia, Insomnia. and Prestige. No, Prestige was no, after Prestige Batman was after. Begins. Oh, so then it's only three Yeah, before. Okay, so he made these three films before, mm-hmm. and uh, Insomnia is a very scummy film as well. It is a little um, scummy. It, it's a, and it's a, you know, a crime film, very, you know, I think it's, a, it's kind of, to me, his you know, most boring film. Um, but it's a sleepy movie. It's a sleepy movie. It's a wakeful movie. It's a bright movie. It's a, it's, it's, but it's, it's, you know, Robin Williams, notwithstanding, who's, you know, awesome in that film. It's pretty, pretty standard. It's pretty, it, it's Nolan. It doesn't have the Nolan uh, imprimatur on it the way I think other films do. I hear that. But I do think he was going down a different path. I think he was going down a, lack of a better word, a, uh, a, a script first type path. A narrative first type path, a a a narrative trickery type thing. I think you see it in this film where there's a trick ending. Memento to me is one of the great endings of all time. Um, Insomnia is pretty standard, but you know, I think part of the reason why I thought Prestige might be first is because don't forget how Prestige, the the, the reveal of Prestige, not the Quinn reveal, pretty nihilistic. Yeah, the Hugh Jackman reveal, yeah. like it was so devastating to me. This idea that this guy kills himself every night, and uh, you know. For his art, I think I know. I think I think that's right there on the page. <laughs> but taking Batman Begins and then taking Dark Knight and taking Dark Knight Rises and doing what he did with that set him off on this different route where he no longer can do. I think the smaller type of narrative trickery, hiding the ball thing, you know, the prestige thing that he was kind of destined to do. Now there is a little bit of that in inception to some degree as well. Um, But it doesn't really feel like that kind of film to me. Well, it's funny that you say that because the recurring line in following is you take it away and you show them what they had. This is what's said to our protagonist by Cobb, who's the, uh, you know, yes, uh, a name that comes back in, in inception. Uh, and he's the thief that our protagonist kind of like falls under the sway of. And, you know, he likes to just basically burglarize these apartments and take things, not for any specific reason, just to kind of psychologically mess with uh, the people who uh, live there. And, you know, if he gets some something he can pawn off, all the better. But they keep saying it over and over. You take it away and show them what they had. And it's impossible, especially when you're, Rewatching this with the eye towards what he would go on to do to wonder, okay, so what if you did take those incredibly big budgets away? What if you did mm-hmm. take away the convoluted, you know, uh, twisting sound in time? Mixes? Yeah, sure. Uh, no, well, the twisting in time, yeah. Yeah. There, there's no <laughs> taking it away. He will part with that uh, uh, under no circumstances. But if he didn't have the money, the bells and whistles, the sound mixes, the everything else, yeah. What kind of movie would he make? You know, would it be something uh, more spare, quick, dirty, mean like this? Can yeah. he go back to that? 
because, you know, we see a lot of uh, big filmmakers who, you know, you can paint with that auteur brush, but also have a lot of experience making big budget Hollywood films. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of Alfonso Cuaron doing Roma and Kenneth Branagh doing Belfast, where these are ostensibly the smaller black and white personal movies. Mm -hmm. They still cost a lot. They still have a lot of stage work. They still involve build this grand thing for me. And they still have, to my mind, really outrageous, oppressive sound mixes. Like these people, like you can take, you can't take the director out of Skywalker Ranch to do his sound mix, even if it's a small, intimate <laughs> yeah. movie. Like, you know, a, a, a drop of water falling from the eaves in Roma would land on the ground and you would think it was a Michael Bay movie and an explosion was going off. I found that really obnoxious. And it goes to show that even when a lot of these really big directors return to their roots or strip mm. themselves down, there's some trinkets and bells and whistles that they simply can't part with. And so I do wonder if you took away Chris Nolan's budgets and you did force him to work without those things that he's become accustomed to, like that impenetrable sound mix where dialogue and music yeah. uh, are all on the same level. What would he make? Well, I, so that's, that's actually, I love that about modern Nolan. I love, like, I, I love the sound of modern Nolan films. And it's funny because he, he would only do that if he was forced to, right? Yeah. And the guy who was forced to do that, uh, which I, I think is interesting, was M. Night Shyamalan, you know, where he really was, everything was taken away from him. He was forced to go and make the, the, the was the visit? The visit, yeah. Uh, the visit. And he was uh, forced to make some low budget stuff. And it, he really did return to his roots. So I do wonder what would happen if Nolan failed like four or five times in a row. And- <laughs> or, or maybe the circumstances aren't his failure, but the like lack of room in the marketplace to make the movies that he wants sure. to make. That, you know that, what I mean? That, yeah. He is one of maybe... Four remaining yeah. directors who can make original high budget studio movies, sci-fi um, films, yeah, yeah, or even yeah. or even one that isn't sci-fi. I mean, Oppenheimer right now that he's shooting. I know there's so many jokes about who isn't in this movie, but that's kind of the point: is that nobody gets to make a really big budget period drama biopic, yeah. and yeah. so he's got to fill it with every movie star uh, on earth to make it feel like as much of an event as the Spider-Man film. You know, it's interesting. As I was watching Following the other day, it, it kind of made me think about Soderbergh. It made me think about The Liming, which Definitely. is a 99 film as well. Um, and there's, there's a lot more Soderbergh and Nolan in the early days of Nolan than I, than I really kind of picked up on before. I think about this and Memento in particular do feel like there could have been a Soderbergh path for Nolan as well a little bit. And did Soderbergh produce Insomnia? Am I crazy? I feel like uh, yeah, I think, I think I think he I think was he involved with it. that because Insomnia is a remake, so he yeah. probably came on board early and maybe even mold directing that. And you know that's interesting too because Soderbergh is someone who very purposefully will take away uh, all his toys yes. and say, "Well, what if I did have to make a micro budget movie?" You know, just to kind of keep himself sharp. Yeah, and I, I think that you know we're obviously big fans of Soderbergh. Uh, Kenny and I, and, and and I think he's a really special filmmaker because of that. The ability to kind of separate himself from his art a little bit, to have a little bit of perspective, to want to challenge himself. I mean, listen, I'm not suggesting that Nolan's not challenging himself. I'm sure that he is in terms of the, the sheer size. Is. He certainly is. Yeah. Um, but it, it it is interesting to think about what a smaller Nolan film would feel like today. Well, he has 
this is going to sound maybe stupid, but to what <clears> you said, Kyle, he's one of maybe four filmmakers who can make a high budget studio film that, yep. you know, gets that 120, 150 budget, right? Mm-hmm. He almost has a responsibility to make those movies right now. Sure. Um, you know, I think the, he feels that. I think he, I mean, you know, there was maybe something uh, distastefully messianistic about the way he treated Tenet, you know, mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. way he played chicken with movie theaters. Like, we you stay open. Yeah. yeah. We will eventually put this out, you know. Yeah, I think that <laughs> it I, was distasteful, if I'm being completely frank. over a lot of those theaters also. It, but yeah, anyway, no, it, going, it, it is. It's, it, it is, and it was. It was uncomfortable, and it was. It wasn't the best look of all time. But as someone, you know, who it's not that I bemoan IP. I try to make IP things literally every day. <laughs> but as uh, as but as someone who certainly you know roots for a world where um, original ideas can stand you know shoulder to shoulder a little higher than IP driven ideas, the guys who are out there, guys and girls who are out there. Uh, making original film on a healthy budget, I think, do they have a responsibility? Like, no, but kind of yes. Like, it's kind of important to prove that these films have an audience. Um, you know, that's why I root for dumb shit like Free Guy and Ambulance and uh, and Lost City. I, I root for these, like, random ass shit because I want to believe that these things are viable in the marketplace still. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's, I, I think that I, there's no question in my mind that Nolan takes that responsibility very seriously, um, I, and and I I respect that he does that. I I love um, see. I mean, when I saw uh, Dunkirk in IMAX, it is a it is a glorious experience. Seeing his films in IMAX is everything that I love about the movie going experience. Right, the sheer size and scope and technical proficiency of what he does is pretty much unmatched right now. And I love that he cares that much about it. The tenant situation was just unfortunate because I felt like he was just kind of, he was not seeing the forest for the trees in terms of like the, the pandemic and what the world was going through. And that, that this, he had this terrible fear that movie theaters were just going to go away if he didn't stand his ground um, and I mean, and then there was the whole debacle with with HBO Max, and now Universal has Oppenheimer, and we'll just see how that goes. But I I, I agree with you 100, percent Kenny, which is that it's important that we have original films. I remember, I mean, Inception comes out in 2010, which is 12 years ago now, and I'm sure we all remember it did incredibly well, and everyone was just like, he saved the original. You know I mean, like original films still have life because Inception can make a shit ton of money. Um, I mean, is he the only guy that can do that right now? I, I I don't know. I really don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's a handful. It's Spielberg, um, Chris Nolan, sure. Jordan Peele to some extent, although I don't sure. think he's necessarily working at that budget range. Sure. But certainly when it comes to original ideas. Um, James Cameron. Uh, I mean, but Fincher isn't making uh, theatrical movies anymore. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, it's true. There's it, it. It really does feel as though there's a very small pool of people that can do it, and 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 are quite frankly interested in doing it. I mean, there's a lot of people that are just sort of, you know, happy to be making a mid-range budget art film, quote unquote, or whatever the case might be, and trying to get in the conversation for awards or what have you. And they don't need to have, you know, I mean, Nolan's budgets are what 150 million dollars, 200 million dollars. I mean, they're 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 staggeringly high. Also worth noting that Nolan was maybe one of the very last directors 
who could have the budget evolution that he had. I would say maybe him and then maybe Ryan Coogler, where you would make a small movie, then you would make a somewhat bigger movie, and then you would make a gigantic studio movie. You know, so you had the in between phase. Yeah. Uh, you didn't just immediately leap to tentpole filmmaking. Yeah, it's you know yeah. it is it is interesting. You're, yeah, you're it's you're you're saying that that intermediary step, that creed step, doesn't really exist anymore. Like Chloe Zhao made three very small movies, and all of a sudden is making the internal Marvel movies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It 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 is. Yeah, I the watching following it did make me think about a what a smaller movie would look like from him but also um you know if he's even capable of doing it anymore and i and, and that's not a shot against him but i just don't even know if it's if it's even of an interest to him like is it now just he has to make 200 million dollar movies i don't know well, yeah, I mean, I found it really fascinating to rewatch and I actually made two lists. I made <laughs> lists of all the things that are extremely Chris Nolan about it <laughs> and then all the things that were actually kind of unique to it. And you mm-hmm. wonder, did those get drummed out of him or does he mm-hmm. still have those in him someplace? You want to share uh, those lists? Yes, 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 I do. <laughs> please, please. Okay, so the things that are unmistakably Chris Nolan, we've mm-hmm. talked about some of them, you know, mm-hmm. the nonlinear storytelling, the fact that there's sort of an existential heist, uh, you know, the object isn't important necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's about, you know, what, what it creates in the characters. Uh, there's literally a Batman sticker on the front door. And there's a character named Cobb. Uh, very interesting to go back to that name, especially in a movie where the other characters really aren't uh, named um, for Inception. Uh, then there is also a Chris Nolan trademark that I'm really fascinated by because I wonder how conscious he is of it, which is that in every movie he makes, there will be one character who has his hair and dresses just like him. Um, yeah. he, he loves to make somebody go blonde, Guy Pierce blonde, DiCaprio in Inception, Aaron Eckhart, Robert Pattinson in Tenet, uh, Tom Glenn Carney in Dunkirk. He loves blonde. He loves a middle part with a widow's peak. Yes. At one point when I was watching uh, Jeremy Theobald, who plays the protagonist, it was, I think, when they go uh, to the restaurant right before they get seen by the, um, the woman whose house they burgled. Uh, and I thought to myself, I wonder what Chris Nolan looked like at the time that he was shooting following. And I Googled him and I found a picture of him with his hair and his outfit exactly <laughs> the same. Wearing a suit. <laughs> well, yeah. well, actually, what's interesting is that you know, the uh, Cobb, uh, who's sort of nudging our protagonist to become yeah. more like him, uh, is nudging him into, like, wearing a suit and doing his hair a little bit different. Uh, but you have the two versions of Chris Nolan. You have casual Chris Nolan, which, you know, the widow's sure. peak and the kind of messy hair, maybe like a chambray button-up. And then you have Cobb, who is formal <laughs> Chris Nolan, wearing the suit, much slicker, literally slick back hair. I always find that fascinating. I cannot wait to find out who the Chris Nolan is in Oppenheimer. <laughs> like, who will it be with that cast? We better have at least oh one. Oh, my God. Seriously. Maybe a handful. Yeah. Um, but the things that are unique to following yeah. that I actually appreciated more knowing the path that his career goes down is that I think it's like kinkier and sexier than it is. 
any mm-hmm. of the movies that really follow it. Memento is sexy. Um, but, you know, I think he's, a, on the whole, a very sexless filmmaker. Um, he has his obsessions, and sex doesn't seem to be a part of it. Uh, mm-hmm. Inception is a movie all or about maybe dreams. Maybe it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Inception is literally a movie about dreams that has no place for sex. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. He's just dreaming about buildings and action. But uh, yeah, the not, idea you know. of like love is of interest to him. Like breaking down the notions of love to some degree. But yeah, to your like, point, like well, <laughs> he's interested in the idea of love vis a vis like loyalty and fealty and friendship which yes. are themes that come up a lot mm-hmm. uh you know even tenant there is essentially a love story of a sort between john mm-hmm. david washington and robert pattinson but there's not lust and i don't know i thought it was actually kind of fun to have it have following be a little lustier a little more like kinky there's literally panty sniffing there's voyeurism <laughs> Yeah. You know, I appreciated that. And that also makes it feel a lot more Hitchcockian. Like yes. this movie is very Hitchcock, very, very strangers so. on a train. These two men who are bad influences on each other. And there's a savvier one who's maybe not showing all of his cards. Um, and it's interesting to go back because I do think that between that and Memento, that's essentially what I thought he would blossom into is a, maybe a more Hitchcockian filmmaker than he became. Um, yeah. Also, it's short. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I love it. It's so yeah. short. It doesn't waste any time. It's ruthless. And I feel like that is an underrated element of running time. I listen, I am not the asshole who always tweets, oh, why is this movie so long? Like, fuck off. People will watch <laughs> 10 hours of a TV show <laughs> that they don't even like and they lose their shit if a movie's two hours and five minutes, even if yeah. it's good. Like, sure. calm down. Um, but there is something to be said by for ruthless efficiency. And the fact that this movie is so quick makes the entire vibe of it feel compounded. You know, it's okay. nasty. It's ruthless. It's brutish. It's short. Good. You know, in every way. Like, yeah. all those elements complement uh, themselves. And then also a coherent sound mix. Uh, I love <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of it's it's interesting. You you picked up on that duality of uh, you know, kind of scuzzy Chris Nolan and and put together Chris Nolan. Um, the Chris Nolan thing that I always pick up. I'm not the only one. Is uh, how much his movies seem to be about himself as filmmaker and as boss and as leader and when you say these movies are about things like loyalty fealty and friendship he might be the kind of guy who thinks those are the same those those things are the same thing right a lot of bosses don't understand that the power dynamic means you can't quite have friends on your team right? right the ability the the leverage you have and the ability to let someone go means they're not exactly friends but they don't really understand that they think they are their friends so i think the um you know, I always, I'm always taken by the the, the notion of Inception as uh, how difficult it is for a director to make a film and wrangle all these people together. I think prestige is, you know, what it feels like to die for your art night after night after night. I think that's always been kind of worn on its sleeve. I think you can even see elements of that in Dunkirk about leading people and, um, you know, into a somewhat unwinnable situation where you're going to be judged over and over again. So I think that it's interesting that he always puts these avatars for himself out there. What 
I like about this film is putting out the bad Avatar too. <laughs> you know the 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 pre version, the one who sure. just sits back and watches the action, turning into the one who becomes part of the action. And oops, look what look what happens when you become part of the action. Look how uh, look 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 what happens if you're not ready to play this game. So the the other thing that I noticed that that felt very Nolan to me was the score. It's very propulsive. Like immediately, it's it good. felt it it is a good score, and it felt like right out of the gate. I was like, oh wow, like. It's got. It almost has an inceptiony score to it in its own way, which I thought was really interesting. Um, who do you think the filmmaker is that he became, though? Because that the, you know, people have talked a lot about Michael Mann being obviously a big a big touchstone for him, and I think that 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 is. Um, I, he talks, you know, a lot about Stanley Kubrick being one of his favorite filmmakers, um, but I'm, I, you know, David Lean to some degree or another, just in terms of sheer scope. But, you know, is there a filmmaker that you thought he was going to become at the beginning and that he has actually turned into? It's an interesting thing because for as much as we've isolated some of his tics, trademarks, motifs, like the biggest thing he ever made, which was the, the Batman trilogy... I don't think necessarily has all of those in spades. You know, the Batman movies are not necessarily playing with time in the way that he obviously is interested in. Yeah, almost yep. every other movie he makes is yep. primarily interested in. Um, you know, they're very clean for crime movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, for movies about Gotham City, which is uh, supposed to be a shithole, like <laughs> there's uh, there's um. I don't I don't want to say sterile, maybe that's too mean, but like um they're, they're not they're not messy, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Um so it's an interesting thing because again, we're, we we put him up in an A-list action big budget auteur field that also let's say historically has included your Spielbergs, your Zemeckis's, your James mm-hmm. Camerons, but he is different. I don't think that he has the emotional IQ of those mm-hmm. other people. You know, even James Cameron, who's such a taskmaster, there is a very earnest beating oh, heart time. and yeah. he's interested in love and he has yeah. his kinks for sure. Um, in a way that Chris Nolan just doesn't let on. Um, so it's weird because in some way it's impersonal um, or at least not, 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 uh, not giving up the things that uh, would put, a more personal stamp on it that feels like specific to who he is as a human, but his interests are always very obvious. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, I do think that he, um, he, one of the things that I'm kind of fascinated by is the way that he makes period pieces. I mean, he's made three of them, uh, prestige, uh, Dunkirk and now Oppenheimer. So we don't know what the third one will look like as of yet, but, um, he he they seem otherworldly um you know i think dunkirk's a fascinating movie in so far as that it doesn't really feel like a period piece it's it's a it's a very strange very interesting very calculated i mean his movies are very surgical in the way that they're made um but he yeah he sees the past as i don't know through through a lens that i find really fascinating well, yeah, I mean, and you would hope so because he likes to play with the idea of what even is the past. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's also a really fascinating thing because he likes to challenge the audience yeah. in a way that the other men that we named don't do. 
there's always some element to, I mean, not always, but often, Mm -hmm. there is an element that will really specifically challenge the audience, whether that's the sound mix, but often it's the (laughs) non-linearity and the the absolute, I'm not even going to hold your hand about the non-linearity. You know, you're not going to get a lost whoosh as we, you know, go into a flashback, it's just going to be the next scene. Particularly and it's in gonna this disorient. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this, yeah. All of the, this is a disorienting movie. You do have to kind of you catch yourself and remember where you are. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think I'm trying to really kind of grasp why I go to a Nolan movie, uh, a non Dark Knight or non Batman Nolan movie. And a lot of it is to kind of have my brain scratched a little bit. Um, and kind of catch up with what he's doing. And I'm thinking like, you know, in terms of I think Dunkirk's pretty boring, and I th- and I think a lot of that comes from a um, a place where visually no one else could have done it, but thematically and narratively anyone else could have done it. And whereas the Prestige isn't really it is a period piece, I guess, but it's a science fiction movie, right? You're dealing with you're dealing with an element Time there, travel, yeah, yeah, or or I guess teleportation or whatever you want to yeah yes you know you're dealing with someone yeah i mean it's presented as a as as a battle between two magicians but one guy actually finds real magic which you know is is (laughs) didn't actually happen i think it was what 1920s colorado so but don't you think uh, it's interesting not to cut you off don't you think it's interesting that um he still grounds it in in tesla like he still grounds it in some because like no mythical feature any mythical creature anyway tesla you right. know, obviously this was like 10 years before the tesla fetus the nicholas nicholas yeah. nicholas tesla, tesla, tesla yeah. fetish, fetishization thing yes but there still is a little bit back there which is what did he actually know what did he actually do like what but i just mean in terms of the way nolan embraces genre when he does embrace genre seems to always be with some connection to reality science. and science and I, something like that i yeah. guess he would consider it a little harder science fiction but there's really nothing hard science fiction about it well, i think he's he's just yeah. interested in how things work yeah. um, right that's right, right. i think why he's often interested in a heist because it requires that planning and see-through but he's obviously sure. interested in science and all these other things he wants to know like literally how does this work and that probably does ground the batman movies in something that's a little bit more realistic for good mm-hmm. and for mm-hmm. ill uh, because it has to be workable, you know. Yeah. The 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 city that he's made is the least fantastical Gotham city in the mm-hmm. big screen films, and you know, so is essentially the Batman and the other people who populate it. Yeah, yeah. it's it, it is very to to your point, Kenny. There is something very sort of interesting about how he handles anything even touching the supernatural um you know i i i just don't think he seems comfortable in it or or, yeah it's a shame he's not into (laughs) it it does it's it does not interest him he's more interested in like i don't think he's interested in like magical hand waving he wants to know like you know in the same way as the prestige and that's why i go back and forth on the prestige like you know he wants to know what is the sort of scientific uh, method behind everything you yeah. you and you have that sense from him as a filmmaker um you know that he has really thought out all the like how does this work of everything yes. it's i don't know i'm talking myself out of nolan it's cheap um <laughs> it's cheap to say it's cheap to say 
I think this could maybe possibly work because Nikola, Te- Nikola Tesla was working on something like this. There's no tr- there's no teleportation. That's not a real thing right now. It was, yeah. it, so like that's cheap. It's cheap to present this as this is kind of real and I kind of figured it out. Just like I, I always like I love Inception. I love the experience of watching Inception. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some really exciting ideas and it flies for me. And uh, I, I, I do. I think it's really cool. But like the way it's presented as a dream within a dream moves slower, as if that's scientific. What? <laughs> like and then Wait, a dream within yeah, a dream within a dream moves even slower. Like no, that's that's not that's that's not universal. That's not scientific. That is you 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 you're you're cheaping out with something that I think a kid would think of. Well, but like, I do appreciate that at least it's like you know that he's thought it through and like here are the rules of the game. You know, I, as yes. opposed to just kind Look, of like hand waving it, it doesn't matter. I like I he, do, he I knows his own rules. He like <laughs> I, I, he would write his own Wikipedia entries for these I, films I, if he could. I, you get that. Sense. I hate to say this about Nolan, but I do too. I I, I am very very pro rules, and I'm very very pro someone you know kind of like in in a very elegant non expositional way laying them out. Even though this movie isn't. Inception is an hour of exposition. It doesn't even bother me. I think it's so beautifully told. Um, the dream within a dream within a dream thing, uh, every rule in Inception feels very first drafty to me. It feels like we're going to figure out something better later. You know, that like, that feels yeah. a little more dream logic-y and not so much like, have you ever had a dream within a dream? And it feels like a lot of stuff is happening within that dream. More than it could happen in those eight hours. We can do better. Like, I, I just, I, we can do better. I don't know that I agree. I mean, I do think that Nolan's specifically Inception is the one that if you put under a microscope, it's, it's probably not going to hold up logistically. Like, the, the logic of what's going on. It's well, it, the it big- definitely doesn't because it's dream logic. That's what I'm, that's what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. It definitely doesn't because it's dream logic. And a guy like uh, Lynch doesn't even bother to say this is why it's sure, happening sure. because you're already in a realm where they have no rules. I don't mind that he's saying like, this is now a science where you can enter someone's dreams and yeah. this is what happens within them. But I do mind that it's so similar to what, you know, anybody would come up with that. I think we can go a little, you can do a little. I do think work that, there. I mean, Inception is one of those films where every time I watch it and I've watched it many times. Me too. Um, I do find myself just completely swept up in it. Me too. Um, and and it, it's, you know, and we'll talk about our top fives at the end, but, you know, I do think that it's arguably the most Nolan movie, right? Like if we're quantifying that, it does feel, to me anyway, in my humble opinion, it feels like it checks the most boxes of the list that you just outlined, Kyle, right? Like the most, the most Nolan-y things exist within Inception. Right. Um, and I, you know, sorry. and just because it has these things that I don't completely love, it, it, I'm, I'm not going to not love it because it has some, course, some yeah. wonky stuff. I absolutely love the film. I think the other thing, Kyle, you said that that is kind of. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You know, forced me to kind of reevaluate what I think about Nolan is, is how utterly sexless his films are. And the way that, you know, when Tenet comes out, I hear a lot of people talking about how there is some, you know, love story bordering on lust thing between John David Washington and Robert Pattinson. My feeling is that that's a lot of wish, like like a lot of wish casting. There's no lust. It really, it it truly is that it's people bringing their own things. I mean, love story. Sure. It's, it intimates, but again, that's very off screen. Like the idea that these two men have become, you know, important figures in each other's lives, but not during the time period. That we see the the right. only lusty thing or kinky thing in the movie is when Elizabeth Debicki stands up and she's five inches taller than John David Washington and she kisses him on the forehead. I was like, <laughs> that is specific and kinky. <laughs> lean into that. Literally lean in in the case of Elizabeth <laughs> Debicki. You know, like yeah. you mentioned uh, David Lynch and there's, you know, no better American practitioner of dream logic in movies. Yeah. And you know, his dream logic absolutely incorporates uh, sex and kinks and just also things that don't have anything to do with action. I mean, all of the dreams in Inception are, uh, you know, not just action set pieces, but action settings. Um, And I know that it's an action movie, so of course, right? But also, like, there could be a little bit more. I mean, maybe this is what Chris Nolan dreams about. Yeah, I and I would I I don't know the answer to that. Of course, none of us do. But but my sense is, and I always feel this way about David Lynch. My my feeling about David Lynch. I said this on our podcast is I don't think David Lynch has ever had sex. Um, but- oh, David, I I I disagree. David Lynch is a stud. He has great hair. Oh, dated, I'm not saying he's not a he's good looking guy. He's dated Isabella Rossellini. Yeah, he's had sex. And like a I'm, lot I'm, of beautiful actresses. I'm, no, but I, I'm joking. But I think the I, I think that there is something about the way that sex is portrayed in David Lynch movies sure. and TV shows and in Twin Peaks that t- feels to me like, and this is where I was going with this, that David Lynch has a healthy fear of sex, sexuality, and what sex begets. And my sense with Chris Nolan is that if that fear exists or if that desire or if that, you know, fascination exists, he has repressed it so far down that it won't even won't even bleed out the edges the way like I don't have a really good example of. No, but I know exactly what you mean. Like, listen, a lot of filmmakers do this very unconsciously and. You can't even catch that with most Chris Nolan. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, where yeah. people try to wish cast this idea of there's a love story between Pattinson and and Washington, it just feels like I know you guys want him to do this stuff. 
but yeah. he's not who you want him to be. He's a guy who, frankly, makes movies loved by incels. And there's a reason for that. <laughs> because these movies, because they're as repressed as he is. And, and Kenny, like, what's your address and phone number? <laughs> I'm not afraid of these people. <laughs> no, Kenny's definitely not afraid of these people. I'll just say this. I do think that... Uh, what was the movie I called the incel movie? God, I mean, the, you've called many movies incel movies. Oh, uh, well, some movie that people love is an, is an I, incel I do movie. think, though, we've talked about this on other uh, episodes as well. But because, you know, this is 99, there was just a different landscape that existed, right? There were a lot sexier movies. You know, we've yes. talked about the death of, I mean, uh, Karina Longworth right now is doing a whole miniseries on erotic cinema from the 80s and 90s and the lack thereof that exists now. I mean, it's, you know, Kenny and I were texting about this. Like, what was the last sexy movie that was a big hit? We're like everybody on the internet. I mean, we're obsessed right. with erotic thrillers right now. Sure. We want them to right. come back. Yeah. Right. And, and, and it's interesting because I think that, as you, as you stated, Kyle, Nolan's got it in him. Like, it was there in this movie. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was even so. there in Memento. And he just, he just sublimated it and was like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, Memento, the, the vibe between Guy Pierce and Carrie Ann Moss is very mm-hmm. hot. I mean, mm-hmm. also, yeah. literally, mm-hmm. he has tattoos all over his great body. His so body. he's, yeah. you know, <laughs> constantly shirtless. There's... Yeah. And, you know, listen, does every movie need to be stuffed no. with sexual desire? No. But it is interesting because, I mean, are we going to say Zemeckis movies are, like, super sexy? No. <laughs> uh, James Cameron, absolutely. Yes. You can absolutely pick up on Extremely. James Cameron's well, sexual interest when you watch his films. Spielberg, less so as moments, well. But he has but his Still, moments. I mean, there's... I Spielberg is well aware that people have sex. And yeah, like yeah. he, he well, he's, especially he's, in his earlier days. I mean, Temple of Doom is yeah. very sexy. Uh, yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark I, is very sexy. I agree. I, yeah. I want to ride for Zemeckis uh, as a sexy filmmaker. Some of his movies are kind of overtly <laughs> sexy. What Lies Beneath is an overtly sexy movie. That's true. Um, but uh, you know, yeah. Back to the yeah. Future is about what would it be like if your mom tried to fuck you. <laughs> so, like his his sex thing. Yeah. is askew but it's there like that like his like exciting thing all That's comes true. from this like, well and also romancing the stone thing. he does yeah. romances at yeah. least yeah. uh chris nolan the way he treats romance yeah i mean the I don't irony of it on. is like <laughs> this dude this dude could make an erotic thriller he could he could make a techno erotic thriller like he just could and i think like I, i'm I, Which is kind know, of what people it. thought Tenet was going to be before it came out. Because we didn't know anything but, about it. But and there was a projection of that. Yeah. I'm trying, like, I do, as someone who likes big-faced mean girls, <laughs> I do think there is something to the idea that, that what exactly is Cobb in love with when it comes to Mal? And it might be how fucking bad she is. And there, and you know, her fucking name is Mel. I mean, come on. And there is something there that may be the seed of like, okay, this is what you want, or this is what gets you going. Well, so here's an interesting thing. Um, If we take all these things we're talking about and we apply them to following, you know, I know that, Phil, you mentioned at the beginning that the female character is a little bit thin and it is, she is sort of like the standard femme fatale trope. 
But what you realize by the end of the movie is that the actual femme fatale is Cobb, oh, you know? Shit. He's Mark, the one yeah. who is luring our protagonist into his web, kind of making him over and using him, like, completely. Yeah. She's almost a red herring for it, so. Yeah. No, I, I think that that's true. I mean, I, I don't mean to suggest that he's, that Nolan is incapable of of writing or directing interesting female characters. Like they're, they're all interesting. I'm just not convinced that they're as, um, as complex as they can be. I'm not convinced that, that the male characters interact with them in the most interesting ways. I mean, I think that Mal is, you know, kind of your right to, to underline her because she's one of the more interesting ones because she's painted in a way that, that is, through the dream logic of that movie, you're unsure of what you're looking at a lot of the time and which version and all that. Oh, yeah, I was going to say also all of your criticisms of her are blunted by the fact that they are, she's a projection of our male character. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's and and Elizabeth Debicki, whose character, I, I don't know the name of her character in Tenant. Um, I love Elizabeth. Debicki. She's great. <laughs> uh, she's never an she, Elizabeth Debicki. I don't care. If her and and I, I love that he lets her be tall. I love that he, yes. he uses her. She's so tall, in fact, that she's able to unlock a door from the back yes. seat of the car at one point. <laughs> so good. <laughs> which is great. Um, but, and, and she's, I think that Elizabeth Debicki is an interesting and compelling actress. I'm not convinced that that role is all that interesting, but she's very watchable and there's something going on there. Um, Another yeah, Australian. I mean, and she's an Australian. I, I just think that um, he is, he's, we all long for him, I think, as a filmmaker to stretch his wings a little bit and to try to challenge himself a little bit more creatively. And I wonder whether or not he's just hes just not interested in doing that. I do wonder, there might be a somewhat even more personal connection than, we're, than we have all of the information to dig into sure. with following. Sure. But knowing that Chris Nolan's has two brothers, <laughs> uh, one of whom is a writer like him, <laughs> And one of whom is a criminal, uh, it kind of uh, reframes the sort of sure, central sure. idea of how how easily you could toggle from one to the other in following. That is interesting. I I, I think I knew the criminal thing. Um, I, I but did I, not. I, but I that I it was is, in the recesses of my mind and didn't. Yeah, really, the third yeah. Nolan brother is, I believe, a hired assassin who was imprisoned. So. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Just yeah, crazy. I think. Are you doing? Are you digging into this right now? <laughs> sure, am, pal. <laughs> I think there's something. I I think you have hit something, Kyle. There with how sort of, um, he is a. I do. I think that Nolan's very in touch with himself and his art. I don't mean to suggest that he's not. Um, and I wonder if he's just choosing not to dive into some things because he just right. doesn't want to, you know. I feel like I implied it. earlier that his films are sort of impersonal and that's not the right word because they're obviously so specific to him mm-hmm. and what mm-hmm. he's interested in. There just always is a reserve uh, mm-hmm. to him. You know, even at his most maximal, there yeah. is a little bit of like, I want to keep you either um, unmoored or mm-hmm. at a distance from me. Like even in his interviews, you know he's oh, he he's is a very deadly interview. He's the most boring interview. <laughs> have you I interviewed swear him? To God, uh, like you watch him at a Q and A, 
It yeah. seems totally genial and fine, yeah. but he doesn't give you anything. anything. The only thing I ever saw, and I would I not saw, listened to. I don't know if you guys have listened to his episode of uh, Desert Island Discs uh, for the BBC a few years ago. Um, it's the most candid and open he's ever sounded. He sounds like he's having the best time of his life. Um, I don't know if it's because he loves the, the show, uh, grew up with it as a kid and was just excited to be on it. But listening to him talk about his favorite records, um, he just really just opens up. I think it's also because like there's, they're not asking about his movies. They're not asking about any of that shit, right? Like it's just him talking about his personal connection to music. And it, it, it's really fascinating. He, he genuinely sounds um, the most human he's ever said. <laughs> the most personality I've ever seen him display is when Warner Brothers fucked over all their filmmakers with the HBO Max situation. <laughs> yeah. And suddenly he yeah. was so scorned and, yeah. and uh, yeah. catty and interesting. Yeah. It was like suddenly he had the ammo to go off and write the best breakup album ever. Yeah. You know? He, he did seem very yeah. energized. Yes, he did. Yeah, um, very so Taylor Swift moment him. of him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was. He, he's going to yeah. go remake all of his Warner Brothers movies now. Yeah. <laughs> for, for Universal. Yeah. yeah. I, it's, <laughs> it's, it is interesting how that really did hit a vein for him in a way, like a nerve that he just... Which, which I, I think talks about what you sort of goes into what you were saying, Kenny, which is how personal he takes this. That he does feel as though he's one of those people at the front of the, you know, at the front lines for theatrical movies. And this felt like a, a front to him and what he stands for and, and other filmmakers as well. And again, just to be, I, Kenny and I talked about this when it happened as well. And, and I, I was pretty, I continue to be a little bit frustrated by his lack of foresight and and his lack of sort of thinking that it was scorched earth with the whole HBO Max thing. I think that it would have been, I think that hindsight being what it is, he probably should have just, I don't know, taken a breath, counted to 10, looked at the, at the situation six, eight months from then. But obviously that wasn't the case. He decided to just, you know, do it. Well, listen, I have a lot of complaints about how he handled the whole tenant release situation because yeah. I think he kept teasing those theaters to stay open when they didn't have product and their overhead was running out because he said, we will be releasing it. And it just kept getting pushed back to really to the detriment of the theaters that I think he wanted to save. That said, (laughs) for him to be willing to burn those bridges uh, with Warner Brothers, I thought was a valuable use of his cachet. You know, that absolutely did like set off a four alarm fire about like, how can we treat certain filmmakers this That's way true. and will this inhibit us, you know? And, and, and the Scarlett Johansson Black Widow thing was another yeah. example of that And sometimes too. you have so. to be willing to spend that cachet. Sure. Uh, we just, haven't it, seen it, him historically ready to, uh, you know, to go there, but I, I, do liked, wish I like that, Chris Nolan who goes there. For sure. And I said this to you, Kenny, when it was all going down, but there's a part of me that feels like, um, listen, I agree with what you're saying, Kyle, in terms of the fact that he needed to use his moment to like throw down and to and to shine a light on something. I also think that Chris Nolan could be doing any number of things to be supporting young filmmakers in any number of ways of which he's not doing, right? Like he's I, I, not I would I would wager he thinks that what he's doing to support young filmmakers is like keeping theaters alive. I you know? I agree with I, literally I, that. I think I think that is very valiant and important. I'm not I saying just, it's I, not, but I, I also no, I think know, there's other but, ways that he could be, you know, there's any number of ways that he could be. He doesn't even produce 
anything really he could be using his name he to get people produced uh man of steel, man of steel. Every, every, <laughs> but like every he could be using he could be using syncope to produce any number of young filmmakers and use his cloud in that way and he doesn't like these well, are just it's an interesting things. thing though because if he was producing young filmmakers who were making things like following those films would not come out in theaters i mean maybe right. he could try maybe that right. would really be him flexing those muscles but like that's uh, all i'm saying but uh, something like following or let's be real even a 40 million dollar movie like inception mm-hmm. yeah. or uh, no not inception insomnia yeah would that come out on anything but like amazon or hulu yeah. or netflix now i i mean i i just to be very clear kenny i'm not disagreeing with you in the sense that his efforts to keep theaters open is valiant and he should keep doing that and bang that drum as loud as he possibly can but i also think that He's a very powerful guy. And my fear is that he's using a lot of that power for his own films and maybe could be using some of that power to get some other films made too. I, I, I mean, he could be doing both. I guess is all I would yes, say. Yes, he could be I doing agree. Both. But Absolutely. It's, it's... Part of me wants to say he's fighting a losing battle. <laughs> And then part of me wants to say, you know, uh, this stuff is sick. This stuff is secular, and mm-hmm. you never know what's going to happen in the future. And you never know if people are going to, you know, come out of this pandemic and just want to sit in movie theaters. And you better hope that there are movie theaters around and movie and movies to be shown in those theaters. And if guys like Chris Nolan are punting and putting their films, and I, frankly, I, I would include Soderbergh in this too, because Soderbergh has basically punted and decided to put put everything he does on streaming. And I think that's to the detriment of the um, the industry. I think it's to the detriment that these fairly large movies that Soderbergh is making, Kimmy and you know, no sudden, what was it called? Uh, the uh, no sudden move. Are those no fairly large? What's that? Are those fairly large movies, or are they like they're like you know? prob- they're the kind of things that I think would be? It's not even that. It's not even that they those particular movies should be theatrical releases though i think they should be it's that he is he is targeting uh-huh. streaming services instead of making more movies like i guess uh a magic mike or a logan lucky well magic mike that, 3 absolutely should be theatrical is he I is mean, he gonna even direct that i don't think he, he is, is directing right? it oh, is he the only reason him? they're making it is because he was he came to i'm sure, and sure that's like, gonna be theatrical. i have an idea for, for the him. third one yes. it's not it's i mean it's being made for hbo max that's horrifying because I, I i spoke to channing tatum or Lost City, and yeah. he's like, you know, hopefully by the time we make it and they see what they have on their hands, we can work out something. But that's not guaranteed, and that is unfortunate because, like, the second that, Ma- Magic Mike movie is one of the most memorable theatrical experiences. I, I saw I've that ever opening had. weekend. And that, that audience, hell, yeah, that so audience. Activated. That's a maximalist <laughs> movie, right there, right there in yeah, the title. Yes, yes, yes. But uh, <laughs> it's yeah, I think that's kind of what I'm what I'm getting at is like, okay, so. Soderbergh, the genius, has no problem making a film for a hundred or for five hundred thousand and having it be, you know, an incredible film, and mm-hmm. he's going to be fine. But like, there's no more world where Solaris exists, you know. And oh, part of that sure is not. because he, part of that because he's not for he he didn't force that he didn't he didn't continue to say like like Nolan is. Uh, we need to keep these open because the Solaris doesn't exist anymore without something like this. And I think you know, I, I think to to Nolan's credit. He doesn't want to live in a world where he can't make a tenant, where he can't make um, a no, interstellar. I, I, I think that 
I mean, a couple things come to mind in terms of the comparison between Soderbergh and Nolan. The first is that I think Soderbergh, I mean, listen, it's, it can't be a surprise to you that, that the guy who made films, continues to make films on iPhones and, you know, was, was doing, you know, bubble back in the day and doing these small, weird little movies isn't, sorry, bubble, bubble. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Doing these, these, you know, small, weird little movies uh, doesn't so much care about where they're released so much as that he gets to make them. Like it's, it's not, not that a, it's not a surprise to me, but I, I do think he has, I, I think there might be a moment where Soderbergh looks in the mirror and says, man, it's really sad that I made magic Mike three and it's going to go to HBO max. And part of that is because he didn't push them. He, he, he didn't push the, the boundaries of the industry the way I think he could have, but I don't, you know, look, he also retired. Also maybe, yes. The retirement. I mean, the, the brief, you know, but yeah. potent break from making any movies yeah. at all coincided with streaming services coming yeah. up, you know? So yeah. no, I don't the landscape him. started to own, change. He's yeah. his own guy. He can make whatever he wants. And I, you know, and I love, I love him for it. I love yeah. that Soderbergh, you know, can, can do anything. I, I just am happy that there's a guy like Nolan who says, no, 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 no. If we're going to, you know, if, Warner Brothers is going to give someone $200 million. It has to be shown on the largest screen possible with incredible sound. And uh, it's not the same experience. It's not why any of us got into this, right? Nobody got into this to show movies on HBO Max and Netflix. I, you, you know that I agree with you, Kenny. You know, by and large, from 30,000 feet, I, I love the theatrical experience. And I try to go and see movies yeah, whenever I you're can. A movie, the, you're a moviegoer. I am, but I, but I also don't know that it's necessarily a a totally binary argument as well. And I think that, that we're, I mean, the filmmaker that, that jumps to mind is Fincher. I think that Fincher is one of those guys who, uh, you know, doesn't care about shooting on film, doesn't care whether or not this film gets seen in a movie theater. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, he's one of our favorite filmmakers, Kenny. So like, it's not as though it, it's, it needs to be one or the other. I'm not um, saying it's binary. I, I, I'm couching everything, and I love Soderbergh. You need to respect the respect yeah. the the road he's walking. But and I respect what no. No, I mean. Truly, you know. Uh, first of all, what you were saying, Kyle, about I how didn't wait years for David Fincher to make a movie and then have it be Netflix's Mank. Though, <laughs> I mean, so. listen, I'm not I'm not a Mank <laughs> stand that. either. But, but I, I mean, that's not, But that's I, I think it's more Netflix's Mank. Like. I just I, I mean I do I, think it's worth noting if Kenny's going to talk about you know filmmakers of a certain stripe and a certain access and ability and yeah. budget level abdicating you know let let's let's put out an idea of a responsibility to keep those theaters humming you could also lay some of that blame at Fincher's feet for sure and and I think that I mean listen mm-hmm. there's there's an argument to be made for you know House of Cards being the tip of the spear when it came to the whole streaming movement, right? I mean, I think that David Fincher is kind of an agent of chaos. I think he kind of likes that. Um, and I, I, I don't necessarily have a problem with it, but I also want to see David Fincher films on the big screen. I think about seeing Gone Girl and and uh, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo and Benjamin yeah. Button on these big screens. Zodiac. They all look fantastic. He should want that. You know, these guys can do whatever they want, but I I think what I'm trying to say is the Fincher route, the Soderbergh route, a lot of, you know, even the Scorsese route right now, this is the path of least resistance. And, you know, I don't think it's their movies made. 
is maybe the more that's but maybe we're saying the same thing maybe we're saying the same thing and Chris Nolan is willing to take that the harder I agree that's what I'm getting at Scorsese's made what now three movies in a row for streaming services and it's great get your movies made but also you're more in Scorsese you you can do whatever you want and if you tell someone I want this in theaters only it's going to be in theaters only you know maybe Netflix won't pay you but someone will now I don't know yeah. if Apple's going to release Killers of Flower Moon in theaters I'm sure they will in some I'm sure way, they will. but yeah I mean I you know I I think it's I think it's complicated. I think that, you know, not to not to be vague, but I do think that, you know, Spielberg has a hard time getting his films made. Um, I mean, it's it's not like everything is... I mean, I think that Lincoln was a very hard film to, to get financed in a lot of ways. And ultimately, I'm sure, I think the movie still made like $200 million worldwide or something like that. But my, my point is that, like, the landscape is changing. I think that the... That, Movie theater chains aren't going anywhere. I, I like to hope that we're going to have more. Believe that. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I hope that's true. I don't necessarily believe that. I think that, I mean, listen, maybe I'm being naive. It's very possible. But I look at your Alamos and I look at the various sort of the, the changes that are coming with perhaps studios opening their own movie chains. I think removing the middleman could be an interesting way that, that, that changes could make the mid-budget movie exist again. Um, but you know, I could also, I could all just go away and people could just turn their homes into home theaters and that's that. It, it would be a bummer though. But um, I, I do think that back to Nolan, I'll just say that I love that he's fighting the fight, Kenny. I agree with you on that. I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon. Um, and I think that Marvel movies are going to continue to be, you know, what they are and getting people to theaters. I mean, what $1.2 billion for Spider-Man doesn't show that people don't want to go to the movies. It shows that they want to go to that movie. Correct. Yeah. People want to go to that movie. I mean, that's, you know, that's 25 films in. I, 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 on one hand, I can love Spider-Man, which I did. On the other hand, it means nothing to me that it does well. It like, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's nothing more than a nice little moment. That's again, that's why a movie like Lost City, which I haven't even seen, like yep. is a movie that I'm sitting here, you know, fucking have my pom poms out for because more movies like Lost City. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I hear that. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I, I think that what I do think is interesting about this entire conversation is that it sparks from a relatively sparse film that was shot over the course of a year in 15-minute increments, essentially, um, because they all had full-time jobs. It was shot on Saturdays um, for $6,000. And now Chris Nolan is who he is. It's very pretty incredible. Could we pause briefly? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, Breaking Will Smith banned from Oscars and other Academy events for the next 10 years. Yeah. 10 years. 10 years ain't a joke. That'll be fun when he shows up at, at 60 and gets a standing ovation. Is that, so that is, is that the only slap on the wrist that we think he's getting most likely? That's, that's the like, I mean, what, what else, else could they, they do? really do? You they could take his Oscar. Who? No, you send the LAPD to go take a Oscar. man's Oscar? That's not how that works. <laughs> <laughs> you imagine taking I, I do Oscar. think that it's interesting. They didn't um, even take Roman Polanski's Oscar. I know. No, I well, think the tenure get into a whole thing. The tenure, oh, and then you got to dig. You got to dig around to all the other people you've given Oscars to that you shouldn't have. 
And I, I bet that it, list is I long. Think a ten year, I think a 10-year ban is, is, is pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah. I it's, mean, it's not like it matters. Like, dude wasn't going to go anyway. For a while, but he but. remains eligible for future nominations and wins. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding? It doesn't even matter. You're going to vote for him? <laughs> I mean, I guess... Imagine... It's just funny that I guess that's true. You're 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 right, Kenny. I mean, but I I also just feel so he's out of the academy. He can't go to the Oscars. It's pretty amazing. Ten years. <laughs> I mean, Will Smith. <laughs> someone someone texted me the other day and said uh, Will Smith's the best thing to happen to the Oscars. But I was just like, I mean, people are talking about the Oscars more than they've talked about them. You know, you were in the room, right, Kyle? You actually. Yep. <laughs> what, you what was, talk, do you want to talk about it on on a mic or no? We can just no we can we can cut this though. I mean, do well, I, I'm, yeah, I'm asking because I would include... love to, I'd love to have it on mic if we can. I'd love to. Yeah, I mean, sure. all right. So, uh, all right. We, I as we're recording this, uh, we just found out Will Smith has a ten year ban from uh, going to the Oscars. Is right. that what? What else was it? Just attending yeah. the Oscars and, or any uh, other Academy related event? So he can't. He can't, means, yeah. he can't go see the Miyazaki retrospective. <laughs> I think he could if he paid. I think he could go to the museum. You think there's a picture uh, of Will Smith taped up uh, at the front desk? Yeah, do not yeah. admit this man. Yeah, uh, and so so we're just gonna pivot real fast because Kyle, yeah. you were there when it happened. And, yeah, uh, how fun is that for us to talk to you about? It? <laughs> Have you spoken to anyone about it yet, or is this we're the first people? I mean, well, in my life, uh, it's your a family. pretty much nonstop yeah, yeah. interrogation. Yeah. Um, and that's fine, and I understand that because it was, you know, a wild thing. I mean, what was the, the energy like in the room? Incredibly crazed. Um, I mean, <laughs> I think at first it was the same response as anybody watching, which is, oh, is this a bit? You know, especially because his back was to us when he hit Chris Rock. Um, and also, you just don't think it would be anything but a bit because why wouldn't it be? Um, but then they started cursing. Uh, Chris Rock said Will Smith slapped the shit out of me which I was like I don't think he would say that uh, and then Will Smith he screamed twice yeah. keep your keep my wife's name out of your fucking mouth which yeah. was like oh I mean <laughs> Lupita's face in that moment was everybody's face in that theater and then from there on um, th- no one's attention was kept at all um, people asked me afterwards what did you think of the Godfather tribute or what What do you think of um, the In Quest Memoriam Love. and the way they did it? <laughs> I don't remember those happening. And I was there. They happened in front of me. Like the only things, like everyone's attention was so diffuse. People were peering down at, at Will in that situation uh, during commercial breaks. Uh, even while things were happening, uh, other things. Everyone was on their phones texting. Oh, there was a new development. Oh, someone tweeted that. While we were in the theater, everyone was on their phones. I sure. barely remember anything. I don't remember anything Jessica Chastain said. I don't remember what the Coda producers said. There were really only three things that got the whole audience like snapping to attention again, which were when Amy Schumer made a joke about it, when Will made his best actor speech, um, and uh, Liza Minnelli coming out and just not knowing oh, yeah. if that was going to run smoothly. But everything else... I need to go back and just actually watch the show because it's just a fever dream from then on. 
And it's all anyone talked about the whole night, as you can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It was surreal. It's it's one of those things where once you have grokked what happened, you're like, oh, we have all just witnessed what will always be the most like famous slash infamous thing that will have ever happened at the Oscars. You know, trumping everything else. Um, uh, A filmmaker involved in what was maybe the number two uh thing uh crazy thing that ever happened at the oscars texted me as the will smith thing was going down and i was like you have been usurped uh this is going to be uh i mean you know it it, it, uh, people have all sorts of questions or thoughts or takes about the morality of the act and i just remain gripped by the fact that the act happened on that stage at the oscars and that um you know, three uh, massive pop cultural institutions, the Oscars, Will Smith and Chris Rock, were irrevocably changed by that simple thing that happened in the blink of an eye. That's and how that I could think. really have only happened in that situation. Uh, people who are like, oh, he needs to be punished so that a precedent can be set. That's never going to happen again. That only happened because of those specific three people on yeah. that specific night with that specific joke. And even... That specific seating layout where they're not Huge in a row of, of people. They're just, yeah. they were just sitting in two chairs that were right, like literally right in front right of there. the stage. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody else was in booths. Like they were their own world that the whole show was playing to, you know? So it's just yeah. such a specific one in a million thing that would ever happen. And it's still wild to look back and be like, oh, that did happen. Yeah. I, I mean, I, it's, Watching it on TV, I was like legitimately shook by it, as were my friends. It, it created a anxiety in the room um, that was pretty fascinating. I mean, obviously, I watched it with a bunch of friends who are in the industry, and we all like watching the Oscars and what have you. And I was texting Kenny about it as it was happening, too. But it just was so... It, it shattered the image of this show as well. Like on some level, say what you will about the Moonlight La La Land thing. That was a happy ending. I mean, it was a weird, crazy thing, but Moonlight won an Academy Award as it should have. And this was just the exact opposite of that. This was That's just... interesting. I don't... Because I, 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 I read a Scott Feinberg piece where he said, you know, the reputation of the Oscars is at an all-time low because of the incident. And I'm like, listen, there might be other reasons why, but I actually don't agree. I think, perversely, this reinforces the idea of the Oscars as like an incredibly important Mm -hmm. cultural event, Um, you know, where you do have to tune in to see what happens and that, you know, the most important thing uh, that happened in these people's lives happened at the Oscars, you know? Which is which is yeah. uh, a narrative that usually is all for the good, but in this case, you know, it's I, I just I would be surprised. I, I really do think, you know, every year people are like, "Are the Oscars relevant still to me?" And I don't know that anyone would ask that after that happened. Oh, I agree with that. I'm, I'm speaking more to the fact that there that that moment had such a. I mean, we witnessed an assault. Uh, it, it was, it was a, 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 there's an edge to what we, what we witnessed that um, changed 
how I viewed certainly that specific Oscars telecast. Uh-huh. I don't think well, that sure. it's, you know, there's, what I mean? there, there's nothing yeah. you're going to remember more than that <laughs> happening at that Oscars telecast. But it's it's always been such a joyous thing, um, whether or not you like the winners or not. And I mean, that's that's all subjective. But like it just it really kind of altered my perspective of the show to some degree. Um, and I do wonder, you know, Kenny and I have speculated about this, you know, where do they go from here? What is, you know, what, what does it look like moving forward? Um, but it's changed. I think it's, something's changed. To, to me, it's such a black swan event. It, it, it means almost nothing. Mm. In t- like, I, I, I think they're going to proceed as if it didn't happen. Um, I don't think okay. it will really affect the show at all. I think they're going to continue to look back and say, you know, we had another lackluster show because the show was terrible, aside from the, the smack. And all the ideas were terrible. And if it wasn't for the slap, I think people would have said it was one of the worst shows they've ever done. And I think they're going to have to just going to retool it again. Um, and I, I don't even think it'll it'll make much of an impact in terms of the Oscars, though I agree with you, Kyle, that like, you know, it... it, it it does resituate itself as one of the like four or five American events every year that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, that news you know, comes out of that. You need yeah. to know as soon as it happens. Yes. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but mostly for me, it's just, I'm still not over the, this is so, that was so fucking crazy. Every, <laughs> you know, every like Zabruder tape moment by moment of it was so crazy. It's also just and crazy just, because it was Will Smith who is so in control of his own image. Yeah. And that it wasn't like it happened at the Golden Globes. It was the Oscars. Yeah. It wasn't like it happened at an Oscars where he was a presenter. Yeah. He was a nominee. And it wasn't like it happened at an Oscars where he was a nominee but wasn't going to win. He won after that. It's just this... Conf- it, it truly is... I said one in a million earlier and that's probably actually too the, low. It's like well, one in a it, trillion. It, it only would have happened, I think, if it were those situation that situation right, exactly. where he felt like the king of the room, which he was presented as and 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 positioned as. Yeah. I think that what you know, I've said this to Phil. It is such rarefied air to be in any one year that kind of anointed we're giving you an Oscar for a performance we think is great but also for your career which we all respect and want to honor it happened to like Julia Roberts and it happened to um, that's the fucking list happened to Brad Pitt a little but for a supporting performance you know like it 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 is about timing when you're a movie star at Leonardo DiCaprio the timing DiCaprio is a great answer not till you're over 40 yes Sandra Bullock had happened with to yeah. some extent where yeah. it's just like, we, you know, you've gotten there. This is serious enough because what all those movies have in common to me is, is that these, this is not fucking, you know, the Godfather. These are just good performances and good serious movies for grownups. And we've got there and you are going to be the king for this night. And he was the king for that night. And look what mm-hmm. happened when one of his subjects stepped so out of line a little it's bit. So he's, he's a bad king. Just like it was, it was like a, Richard. Yeah. It's, it is. I also, it should be said too that I do think, and listen, there's been a million think pieces about this, so we don't need to go on and on about this, but it being Will Smith is kind of also crazy in and of itself. 
because of everything that you were saying, Kyle. He's such a, you know, a, a composed individual, a, a joyful kind of character that we've loved for so long. He's the clean rapper. Like you can't. No, I know that's I what I'm saying. Over, no, I know I can't over. I can't overstate that. He's the. <laughs> he's the. Will Smith doesn't have to curse in his raps to sell records. Like yeah. it's crazy. And then this is this the guy, guy that does that. Is just it was it was such a shocking moment in so many ways. But so listen, crazy. he got a, he got a slap on the wrist for all intents and purposes. This you know this is this is what they got to do. Um, I actually think it's probably the best result, all things considered, in terms of they had to do something. So what but what do? are they going to do? What do you think, Kyle? What would you have done if you ran the academy? Which again, it's there? a one in a million situation. I don't know what they should have done on the night, but when people are like, they should have made a citizen's arrest. They should have set a precedent <laughs> so this will never happen again. I'm like, oh, you think Rachel Zegler is afraid she's going to get like popped when she <laughs> goes up to present a Grammy next weekend? Like, come on, yeah. this is one in a million. Honestly, the damage has been done just by him doing it to his yeah. own career and yeah. image. Yeah. Uh, above and beyond that, I'm not qualified to legislate, <laughs> but I think that's apparent to everyone. You're qualified yeah. to speculate, though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do think that, as we said, you know, moments ago, they're they're you know they're not going to take the Oscar away from him. Um, that he he has you know he left the Academy on his own volition, which I think you know, was the smart play to some degree or another. Um, and they've banned him from the awards for 10 years. I mean, I don't know what else he can really do. He'll be fine. But 18 months, he'll be back. <laughs> anyway, we shall see. Um, let's just, uh, just to wrap this up, uh, at the end of our episodes, Kyle, we rate the film um, zero to 99, zero being the highest, 99, be, sorry, zero being the lowest, 99 being the highest. We rate it before the podcast and after the podcast to see whether the conversation has changed. Um, I'll go first. Um, I not, uh, I mean, I saw this film back in 2000, but I don't really remember it. So I'm not really going to, I'm not going to put that in the, the grading here for me. Um, I liked this film. Um, I liked it being the skeleton key and this weird sort of opportunity to be able to see like where it all kind of began for him. Um, as a film by itself, would I ever watch it again? I don't know. Um, but I'd probably give it like, I'd give it a 75 before the podcast and after this conversation, I think I'm at, you know, 78, maybe 79. I liked it. It wouldn't rank for me, obviously, as one of my favorite films of his, but I still quite liked it. What about you, Kenny? Exactly where you are. Literally oh, okay. the number, which we never do. But uh, And I think I feel the same way you do, too. I don't think I would ever watch it again. Um, but I'd never watch, you know, La Jete again, which I like. So it's like... <laughs> It's. It doesn't mean that I don't. I don't yeah. think it's a great film. I just think it's. Uh, you know, I'm not really interested in watching an elevated student film more than once. That kind of explains this guy's career. Um, I think it was a great film, though. I 75, 75 up to an 80. I do think it's a great, you know, kind of first effort from a guy who is working on a shoestring budget and totally. definitely pretends great things, which I think we've gotten from him. Well, so this does make my list of favorite Nolan films. Oh, wow. Are, we're still going to do our top Yeah, we're going to do that after this rating. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. great. Uh, so yeah. I think I would give it an 85. Uh, okay. I think I'm glad I did go back and watch it again mm-hmm. because it really did take on new dimensions, not just seeing the movie again, but also knowing what kind of sprung out of it. Uh, like no, I said at the top of this podcast, it really is a skeleton key. And the things that are so unique to it uh, mm-hmm. I really grooved on and, uh, and and kind of made it jump up the ladder for me as as far as his resume. 
I, I agree with all of that. I mean, I, 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 uh, I liked it a lot more than I thought I was going to because when I watched it after seeing Memento, it felt very slight back in 2000. And I remember just sort of being like, okay, cool, whatever. And I liked it a lot more this time around. But um, so we'll, we'll kind of go around uh, alternating um, with our, our list. We'll start at five. Um, my five is Batman Begins. Um, I think it's a great movie. Um, I, I think it's stylish. I think it was a game changer despite the fact that everyone puts all the onus on Dark Knight. I think Batman Begins is the one that kind of really starts the whole trend of comic book movies being done in a different way. Um, I just really love it. I think it's a, I think it's a great movie. What about you, Kenny? What's your five? Well, middle fingers in the air. My five is Dark Knight Rises. A movie that I don't really understand why everybody hates. Uh, wow. I, I really love the experience of watching okay. the theater. I thought it was brilliant in the moment. I think Bane is a really interesting villain. I didn't mm-hmm. hate the reveal at the end. I like Dan Hathaway's Catwoman a lot. I like even Joseph Gordon-Levitt's reveal in the end of the movie. I like that it was actually about Batman, where most Batman movies are not about Batman. Um, and I think it was a worthy kind of uh, trilogy topper for this this um for this film and i don't you know p i think it's just you know conventional wisdom that it's like not a bad film but like not a good film and i think it's a very good film my opinion. okay what's your five Kyle? my number five is also batman begins uh <laughs> it's the only batman film on my top five um okay. uh i think that there are things to really like and groove on with the other two but i also have issues like plotting issues moral issues whereas batman begins i no notes i think it's just a really good movie i remember watching it being like this is good it's solid like extremely skilled filmmaking uh good plotting uh makes that length feel uh like you spent the right amount of time watching everybody develop good movie yeah it's it's a it's a it's an actual like it's a film. It's a, you know what I mean? Like it's trying to do something. Um, and it's clear that there's a, that there's a, there's a vision here and a perspective. And, and it's also just really, really well made all that stuff up in the mountains with, with, uh, Liam Neeson and him is it's good shit, but interminable, but yes, good shit. <laughs> uh, my, my number four is the dark Knight. I'd be lying. If I said, I don't enjoy this film. It's, it's deeply rewatchable for me. Um, you know, I, I, I probably would have trimmed some of the fairy stuff at the end. Um, but, but all that being said, I mean, Heath Ledger's electric. It's, it's, it's hard not to, I remember sitting in the theater and it it was, it was an electrifying experience. Everybody was just like, holy shit. This is everything that they hoped it was going to be when that card got turned over at the end of Batman begins. And that's a rarity. Um, and I understand why everyone's been chasing this dragon ever since, um, it's just a, it's a, it's a great film. Kenny, what's your four? My number four is also the dark Knight. Uh, you know, it, it, I, it, my favorite of the three Batmans, like a lot of non Kyle people, but, um, it's <laughs> non Kyle people. I, I, <laughs> as you, you, you alluded to Batman begins with the one you don't have a problem with morally. And that mm-hmm. is my problem with dark Knight. It always has been. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's, you know, kind of pro surveillance and pro nanny state state. that I agree with. And, um, that's uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. I I think. And, uh, turns it's uncomfortable and it makes me kind of, you know, it it makes me kind of reevaluate Nolan's entire oeuvre. 
through that lens. Um, and I felt that in the moment. I couldn't really understand why people weren't turned off by the, the we're going to watch everybody's cell phone thing. Yeah. Um, but if I want to watch a Chris Nolan movie about surveillance, following is right there and <laughs> yeah. it makes it sexy. <laughs> I, the, 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 we it's didn't true. talk about it, but the, the first five minutes of following is so awesome. It's like, it's just a really cool way to start that film and, and something that, you know, I have a little kind of fantasy of one day being a, you know, sneaky little boyer, but I'm not going to do that. A little, uh, a little peeper, <laughs> a little peeper, but little back peeper. to, uh, back to dark night. Uh, yes. yes. Every fucking thing with Ethan is incredible. The opening heist is heat in a Batman film. I mean, with those masks and, you know, uh, William Fickner. It's so good. It's like such an amazing way to start that film and build off the film that came before, which would probably be my sixth. Um, And yeah, everything he does is amazing. And uh, everything else is not the best, though. I do think the Harvey Dent stuff is also very good before he turns to Two-Face. Yep. So. What's your four, Kyle? My four is Dunkirk. Um, I think it's the most purely awe-inspiring one of his movies. I did see that in IMAX. Um, And just from the opening frames, uh, the visual journey of it, the sound, everything is incredible. It puts you in war in a different way than, I mean, in World War II, we've watched many movies about it that cinematically place you there and give you a certain vibe but that to me was unparalleled mm-hmm. um the only knock against dunkirk i have is that you eventually realize that all the bad war shit is just going to happen to like background extras and not anybody that you're actually following and yes. at that point it starts to feel a little bit more like a fun roller coaster than a movie about the ravages of war yeah i mean the worst thing that happens to any of the characters is like a boy who falls down the steps of his boat, you know, like, so yeah. when you look at it, everything else is to, the, yeah. is to, you know, people who are just barely out of frame or in, you mm-hmm. know, uh, or, or, or who the camera is not tracking. So I, I think that's yeah. a slight miscalculation that does temper how I feel about that movie. But, uh, but it's, it's extremely well put. Yeah, I think it's 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 a great film that I that I continually tell myself I'm going to rewatch, and for reasons that just it just doesn't seem to happen. But I do want to watch it again. A lot of movies out there. A lot of movies out there. Uh, my number three is Interstellar. Um, I, I a movie that I mentioned earlier that uh, I liked fine when I saw it in the theater, and has now really become one of my favorite films of his, um, despite the silly fight between Matt Damon and him on a, on a planet somewhere far, far away. Uh, I didn't, I, I, you know, that, that beef aside, um, I just, it's, it's a movie that for whatever reason, and there's many of them, is just really, really grown on me. Um, I, I don't know. It's just, I think we talked a little bit earlier about Nolan and um, the whole research thing. And how sort of it's clear that he does take a lot of time and research into his into his work. And this film tries to be something close to being plausible, quote unquote. Um, it does feel like he's he's approached it with a very sort of two thousand and one kind of perspective. It clearly is his two thousand and one, I guess. Um, and and I do really appreciate that. Also, the filmmaking is just absolutely spectacular. Saw it in IMAX. That that space shit in IMAX is just it's mind blowing. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's really, really, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an all timer for me now, but Kenny, what's your three? My three is Inception, which we talked about a lot. Love the film. 
What's your three, Kyle? My three is also Inception. Um, That's interesting. I think his best set pieces, I think that they're fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and that rotating hallway. I think the way time is used there works really effectively as opposed to in Tenet where there's this idea of like, oh, what if we do the action sequences backwards? And the result, when you see it, and it's really been building up to it, you watch it and you're like, oh, this isn't visually exciting. <laughs> like, it's like, okay, but I don't know. It, it doesn't yeah. have the oomph uh, that the Inception sequences do. Yeah. Uh, my number two is The Prestige. Um, we've talked a fair amount about it, but I'll just say that, um, you know, I know that it's, it's kind of the answer for a lot of people, the kind of, well, Prestige is my favorite Nolan movie answer that I see a lot of, that you do see a fair amount of people saying on, online, which I have no problem with. Um, I, I really, this one and two change for me daily. Um, I just think it's one of Hugh Jackman's best performances. I think that Scarlett Johansson is miscast, but I do think that there's a lot of really good stuff in it. I love, um, I love the look of it. I love the vibe of it. I love him doing a period piece in a weird, cool way. David Bowie's playing Nikola Tesla. Like, I don't know. This is just good. It's just good stuff for me. I just, I, I, I really could talk all day about it. But what's, what's your two, Kenny? Also, The Prestige. Oh, there you go. That I, a movie that I absolutely love, despite its faults. Uh, I, I think, I think it's a really powerful uh, film, I th- and I think it's one that fulfills its super high concept weirdo premise. Yeah. Um, which doesn't always happen, you know, when there's a premise that I'm so excited about that actually kind of fills it, fulfills it. I mean, The Illusionist came out at the same time, and I think this is a hundred and seven steps ahead of that movie. So, uh, yeah, I love The Prestige. Number two. What's your two? My two is following for unlocking the rest of his movies, but also giving me a taste of things that he doesn't do anymore. That's cool. That's cool. I like that it's that high on your list, Kyle. (laughs) Um, My number one's Inception. Uh, you know, I just, it's, it's just deeply, deeply rewatchable. It's the movie that when I have a hankering for Chris Nolan, that's the one I put on. Um, it's, you know, I remember seeing it in the theater. It just felt so exciting. Um, and all of your points, Kenny, earlier are completely justified. Um, when I think about what's going on, I just say, don't think about that and just kind of allow it to, to exist. So that's my number one. What's yours, Kenny? My number one is Memento. It's a no-brainer for me. It's one of my favorite fucking movies ever made. Uh, It's so, to me, for the budget, it's, like, revolutionary. Um, I love the way the story's told. I love the way time is messed with. I love Guy Pearce's performance. I love the way it holds on tight to its central kind of uh, animating idea and never lets it go, which... Uh, is a hard thing to do when you have something like this where you, it almost necessarily will fuck you up at the end. And it doesn't. <laughs> and the I think about the ending of that movie all the time. And I always try to emulate it when I'm writing and then remember, oh, yes, like you have to build the entire fucking thing to get to this ending and make it play. So uh, I absolutely love that film. To me, it's to me, it's like not even a question. Same. Same. My number one. <laughs> I had a feeling that was. I was. I was terrified that you both were going to go your whole top five without no, mentioning no. Memento. I was going to rip my headphones. Out. <laughs> I was going to walk off. Not me, Kyle. Can be done on a podcast. Yeah. No. That's. It's. Uh. It's. Uh, for me. Uh. Head and shoulders above all of his other movies. 
it has all the things that you want out of a Chris Nolan movie, but it's it's clever and grittier and realer and more intriguing and provocative. Um, you know, he is a filmmaker who likes to challenge his audience, uh, but I kind of get the vibe of those challenges now, and I think Memento will still throw curveballs at you. Yeah. I just to just to slightly defend my lack of memento on my list. Uh, I saw memento defend in the theater. Uh, it, it might be indefensible, and that's that's certainly fair. I I was I'm not I'm not as smart as you guys because I felt like a big that's old right. dummy in that theater. All, I, I mean, that's the thing. It, it disorients you. It makes you feel was, dumb, and you're you're. How many times but have it's you exciting seen it? and rewarding. I've seen it so to, many times. Yeah, it's, it's exciting I, and rewarding to like figure it out. And I to, need, and to I go need to, to a coffee it. shop after with your friends, as I did. We went to the coffee shop opposite yeah. the New Art in LA. I still remember the exact friends that I was sitting there with, and I remember us piecing the movie together. That was so much fun. I, I'll just say this: I saw it once in the theater. I owned it. I watched the DVD a couple times. I have not watched it in a very long time. I need to rewatch. You could it. definitely get it. Yeah, no, it's yeah. on HBO Max. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I, I can watch it whenever I want. I, I'll just I, say I, this: I might like grok it. To, to to steal a term from from Kyle. <laughs> oh yes, um, I I just for 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 whatever reason the film left me a little cold, um, and I just didn't <laughs> as a, as opposed to the rest of his incredibly warm oeuvre. <laughs> I know I'm not. Listen, I'm just telling you that that for me for whatever reason it was a film that just didn't hit me on a, on a gut level in the way that it hit you guys, um, and and. I, I promise you I'm going to rewatch it imminently and I'm sure I will agree with you guys and it'll probably bump up and begins off my list. Funny that you use the word warm too because it also has the warmest cinematography of a Chris Nolan film. Without like question. Ambers, reds, oranges. Interesting. Uh, okay. Which he does not tend to use. It's, I, I'm excited I, uh, to watch it again. It, I really, I mean, there are a few movies that when my kids are ready, I cannot wait to show them. And this is high on that list. Like, I just know that like, that this is that that this is the. I mean, there, there are a bunch of movies, particularly from the '90s, when Kyle seemed right around our age. Uh, were were those you know those twisty movies that really got me excited? Mm-hmm. And some of them aged well, and some of them aged poorly. And some of them, you know, you see the you see the threads now, and you don't. I don't think you see any of the threads here. I think this is a Swiss clock. I think this is really like just a, a thrilling movie going experience. And as a guy who's been defending the, you know, the two hundred million dollar movie all podcast, like this is <laughs> this is proof. This is proof to me that like you only need about three million dollars and a few incredible leads. Like the three leads in this are so fucking good. Uh, two of to, them from the Matrix. Two of them from the Matrix, and one of them from LA Confidential. It's yeah. very, it's very cool. Like on the like like of that moment casting, I love it. And I love. I, guy I swear this, to you that I'm going to rewatch it. Um, I really His look in this movie is so cool. I just yeah, like that light suit, blue, the light suit, yeah. blue shirt, uh, blonde hair. Blonde like, hair. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> who's that? Tat- remind you of <laughs> tattoos all tattoos well, that, all over his the body. The tattoo part, yeah. Tattoo very part, yeah. Gross, but, oh, um, Kyle, this has been an absolute, an absolute blast. We really, really appreciate. Appreciate you taking the time to come on here and talk with uh, talk with us about Chris Nolan and and your book. Everyone should go out and buy your book right now. Um, it is a fantastic book, um, and they can find you. Where can they find you, Kyle? Uh, they can find me in the New York Times, uh, and they can find me on Twitter at Kyle Buchanan and uh, in bookstores. Uh, <laughs> Blood, sweat, and crime. I'm going to start reading that tomorrow. 
Please I'm gonna order it right now. You're gonna, you're really gonna love it, Kenny. It's, Can't it's, wait. Uh, it's it's really something. I love special. the Devil's Candy, but I'm always upset that the film didn't work out. So, I, <laughs> what, what are some other ones that you loved that that kind of inspired you real fast? Uh, yeah. The the books about filmmaking. Those two absolutely did. Devil's Candy Monster is great. It's John Gregory Dunn mm-hmm. uh, and Joan Didion getting brought on to write this hard hitting drama about a newswoman who killed herself, and because of studio notes. It becomes up close and personal, a glossy romance with Michelle Pfeiffer oh, and Robert Redford. Movie I love, but yes. Well, you know what? It's, it's like effective for what it's doing. Yeah. It's just yeah. so hilariously yeah. off base. It is funny. Yeah. So that those two were oh, really great. crucial to me. But the, you know, this is also an oral history, and so uh, uh, live from New York, the mm-hmm. Saturday Night Live oral history was pretty uh, instrumental in pushing me down this path as well. I like a good oral history when they're done yeah. well. Uh, Melissa Mayers wrote an incredible oral history of Dazed and Confused that doesn't just give you, yeah. you know, the, you know, what went on behind the movie, but also really effectively um, plays the guitar strings of like nostalgia and regret. Um, and they're, they're, just when you think you have that book figured out, it, it pushes you into a, a uh, more moving emotional place than you would think. And uh, cool. she's an incredible writer and that's a great book. Um, were there any other, oh, were there any other films that you considered doing when you sat down to do the Mad Max? Slash, what uh, did you do next? This definitely was this book. Um, certainly since I've written it, uh, every interview ends with what book are you writing next? Just like which this is, one. <laughs> which is never a question I will ask any director again after having done this <laughs> press tour. Like, what's your next movie? <laughs> I'm like, listen, I I just survived this one. <laughs> no, you can't I push me into doing anything. Yes. I just want to take a vacation. All right, well, do, do, ideas, was, so do we'll Moulin see. Rouge for me, if you, if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> um, thank you so much. This was an absolute blast, Kyle, and we uh, look forward yeah, to having thanks, you on Kyle. again. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.